What's up, Biking Rumor fans? Outbound Lights popped onto the scene a few years ago with a very different take on mountain bike lights. Not only did the products look different, they had a different philosophy about where they should be placed and how the light pattern should work. Turns out, they were onto something. They're growing so fast, they made the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies, and from the sound of things, they're just getting warmed up. In this episode, I talked to Tom Place, who, if you've ever run into them at an event, is probably the guy you talk to, nicknamed Danger. He shares why they make their lights the way they do, the pros and cons of helmet versus bar-mounted lights, why lumens don't matter nearly as much as the marketing hype suggests, and a whole lot more. If you geek out on lights and want a little sneak peek of what they're working on next, this is a good one. Please welcome Tom Danger Place. Hey, Tom, welcome to the Bike Room Show. Thanks. Happy to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you. So what prompted this conversation is the fact that Outbound Lighting just made the Inc. 5000 list. And I think you said you're number 600 and something. So you're up there. 672. Yeah, it's up there. So I, I want to ask you about that, but just to kind of tee up what all we're going to talk about, you know, you guys sort of jumped on the scene very recently in the grand scheme of things, making bike lights just, you know, started a few years ago and have kind of, you know, if you're getting that milestone, you're not just making a dent in the bike industry, but you're making a dent in general industry, general business, right? So I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about the lights because you guys took a very different approach to design and I think even marketing and everything else. So if you're Listening and you're curious about bike lights, there's a, a lot we're going to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the business side of it. What does it take to get on the Inc. 5000 list? And for people who don't know, it's, you know, we're talking about Inc. Magazine. They've been doing the Inc. 500 and the Inc. 5000 of fastest growing companies as an award for many, many years. My dad actually won it for his ad agency when I was a wee tot. So they have been doing it for quite some time. Um, but yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. So um, my business partner, Matt, started this company. I guess almost five years ago now, Kickstarter and assembling lights in his apartment living room, you know, typical garage shop story. But uh, I uh, found him after a year or so. Uh, he basically got over the Kickstarter curse and was still alive and kicking and, and growing. And I thought, okay, if this guy's sticking around and let's do something together and just reached out and we we had a, a unique partnership of things that I sucked at, he was really good at and vice versa which is, it's absolutely key for especially a startup business where you can't have an engineering staff and a marketing staff and a customer service person. It's you, you are that person for everything. And so Matt does all of our website stuff. He's a mechanical engineer, but he's really good at website optimization, search engine optimization, that sort of thing. And he kind of nerds out on the data. I hate that. I don't do it. Um, But I bring the electrical design side. So between the two of us, we kind of cover our bases and when Matt initially started the company, he was looking for a niche outside of automotive lighting. He's working with Diodynamics, an off-road lighting uh, manufacturer, and doing optical design. And he wanted to start a company. He wanted to get into something that there was room to to play and do something different. And uh, he had gone on a ride with a, a buddy of his. He's not a big mountain biker, but he goes every now and then and went on a night ride with a friend who gave him the industry best, like $500 light set from a brand who shall rename nameless and said this is the best that the industry has to offer really and that's when he thought okay i can do something whether or not we are wildly successful or take over the industry we can do something novel and and different here where there's really not a lot of innovation and it's kind of kind of stagnant and because it's a a niche in the bike industry it's 
there's just not a ton of competition like there is, like even bike frames. There's so many frame manufacturers now, and it's really hard to find a frame that, that sucks. You know, it used to be that like suspension design really mattered and you had to really make sure that the bike was balanced. And like now every bike you pick up is pretty good pedaling, pretty good downhill. There's a lot of competition there. And in the light market, there kind of wasn't. And there's plenty of opportunity to actually do new things there. So we dove in head first and decided we're going to make stuff that personally that I want to use. Also that we, we felt like was providing something that didn't already exist in the industry from an ergonomic standpoint and then particularly from a beam pattern standpoint. So anyway, that, as far as the business goes, that seems to have worked pretty well. We're still very small, but uh, we're growing very quickly as that uh, Inc. 5000 list indicates. The way they determine that is they look at your total growth over a three-year period and they rank you based on that. So it wasn't just year over year, it was uh, the, the last three years of the company. So after, you know, it kind of throws out year one because you get a lot of noisy data from initial startups and uh, and goes from there. And we, you know, last year we, I guess now we're in 2023, you know, the year before we doubled in size this past year while the industry was down, we were up 50%, which I think is still pretty good. And we're also, we're not pumping out new products constantly. You know, we don't have 15 different versions of every product. So we're, we're not playing that game of, you know, every year there's something 10% better that you have to get to upgrade. It's this light is good and it's going to be good until we really add value to it with a significant update. And uh, we try to be pretty transparent in the way we discuss that, you know, why we do things a certain way and how we market that. We're not a performance shreddy type brand, you know, not going to see a whole lot of shreddits from us of ripping at night because of how cool it looks. It's like we're kind of more focused on like, you know, I just posted about thermal design yesterday because that's what matters in a product like this. And there's reasons we do what we do. So that seems to have resonated. You know, like we get a lot more engagement from people on nerd stuff and manufacturing stuff <laughs> than we do about this amazing shot. We had a you know professional photographer take some killer shots out in Utah for us. And we love them, but they don't generate the interest that the nerd side of stuff does. And that's more, honestly, more our bread and butter anyways. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, along those lines, then, I'm, I'm kind of curious. So if you look at your packaging and your marketing and your website, you know, you guys downplay or even completely leave off any mention of lumens, right? There's a little bit on your website, but you got to work a little to find it. But um, there's nothing on the packaging. There's nothing on the little pamphlet that comes in the packaging. Um, what's, you know, like for somebody who's promoting like nerding out, that's like the first number anybody looking at bike likes is looking for, right? So why, why downplay that? Because it's the first number people are looking for. And if they want to find it, they'll find it. But if we give it to them front and center and say, this is the most important thing, they look at that, they say, okay, that's less than this other number, I'm going to go over there and they ignore everything else. So we want people to actually think about more than just that one number, because it's kind of like if you're shopping for a bike based purely on suspension travel, like, yeah, more is always better unless you're riding on the road or unless you're riding trail and the way the suspension responds is important and the geometry is important, the weight is important. But if you just look at that one number, it doesn't at all tell you the whole story. And lumens are very much the same way where it's been the only metric that the bike industry has used for lighting for decades. And I think part of that's because there wasn't a lot of like scientific push on the product. It was just about pumping out more light because light sources, especially portable lighting before LEDs, 
was not very efficient. So everything was really dim. So making them brighter was step number one with a bullet. Now we're to the point where we have the technology to make things as bright as we want. There's 8,000 lumen commercial bike light options out there. We don't need that. And when they're not refined with the rest of the package, like the beam pattern in particular, how the lights spread onto the trail, the 8,000 lumens isn't going to feel that much better than properly designed and utilized 2,000 lumens. So if we're getting people to think about the beam pattern, think about the ergonomics for how they how they mount it and where it where it's located, how the thermals work so it doesn't immediately overheat and have to pull the brightness back. That's all really important. And so we're we're focusing on that first. And then we people want to talk about lumens. We'll talk about lumens. It's just not it's just not the most critical thing for us. Does Lux come into play? Because I know um, there was a brand that made a big push on Lux, you know, over the past couple of years and, and also downplayed lumens. So lumens and lux are the just quick definition for listeners. Lumens basically refers to the total amount of light coming out of the light. Doesn't matter where it's going, what color it is, any of that. It's just the total amount of photons coming out of the front of the lens. Lux refers to intensity at a specific point. So if you look down the trail in the center of the trail and you measure the intensity of light hitting that spot on the trail, that's your lux. And so what that tells you is if you have really high lux, that means your beam pattern is more focused, so a tighter, narrower spot. And if you have low lux but high lumens, then it's very wide and even and diffuse. Again, it's a single number that's trying to represent an entire beam pattern. So you can have really high lux, but it's not actually brighter than another light because you're only talking about one point in the beam pattern. That's where it's really hard for us to convey the full package, if that makes sense. Like we're, you know, lumens and lux both are part of it, but no single number metric can really convey what you're actually going to see on the trail. So we're using a lot more images to show spread and not shining against a wall because you're not pointed at a wall five feet from your face out in the field. There's a three-dimensional trail. And so when we design our optics, we're simulating that beam pattern on that three-dimensional space that you're expected to see. You know, on a road, we want our beam to be at least the width of one lane of the road with good coverage elsewhere and then punch a few hundred feet down that road. We don't care so much about light going up in the sky because you're flat and you're, you want light to be on the road. Trail, we have very different requirements. You're going typically at lower speeds. You need a wider beam because your handlebars are constantly turning and not always pointed exactly where you're looking. So if you have a really narrow beam on the bars, the moment you turn, you lose the trail. And we want to make that more natural feeling and more even so you can see your peripheral like you do during the day. So Lux comes into it, but really the only place you'll see Lux specified a lot is in Europe where they have government regulations on bike lights. You know, and if you're commuting, you have to have a cutoff beam pattern passes STVZO requirements. Not something that we'll ever see here in the U.S. (laughs) There's a lot of regulations we'll never see here in the U.S. I'm glad you mentioned like handlebar and how, you know, it turns. So the light turns and, you know, you might be trying, for me anyway, I ride pretty much just exclusively with a helmet light. But I know when you guys came out, it was, the emphasis was really on the handlebar light and it was almost like de-emphasizing a helmet light. And I'm really curious about that because as somebody who tries to look where I'm going, you know, sometimes more successfully than others leading with your head, you get to point the light around the corner that you're going around so you see what's coming up. Whereas with the bar, you're you're not really moving that light until you're actually in the turn. You know, like what's the philosophy on that? Yeah, there's there's a lot of things going on. And I'll start with the the first it's not so much that we think helmet lights are a bad idea. They're they're great. But 
used appropriately and balanced. And so the, the helmet and handlebar serve two totally different pers- purposes, and it's really based on the fact that the light is above your eye line on the helmet and well below it on the bars. So what that does is out on the trail, you've got a bunch of rocks and roots sticking up out of the trail. If you've got a handlebar light, it's casting shadows from that rock sticking up behind the rock. And because your eyes are above that, you're looking down and you can see the shadow on the backside of that rock. So what that means is that you get depth. You can see these are three-dimensional shapes and you can read the terrain very well. With a helmet light, because it's above your eye line, the shadows are now further down. And because your eyes are below it, you can't see the shadows. So what happens is, regardless of beam pattern, brand, whatever, if you have just a helmet light, everything's going to look a lot flatter. You're not getting any shadow definition. So if you're in a really rocky area, like I lived in Scottsdale, Arizona for a while, it's nothing but sharp, loose rocks there. It's rough. If you ride with just a helmet light, it makes it look like the rocks are kind of blended into the ground. It makes them look flat. And so what happens is, unless you know every rock on that trail, you'll be in a position where you're trying to read it at high speed. It's coming past you. And you don't know if that rock is sticking up six inches or basically flush with the dirt. So you are you might be a little bit out of position on the bike, and now that rock is grabbing the bike out from underneath you suddenly, and then you're off balance and offline, and that happens thousands of times as you're riding trying to read the terrain. So having the helmet and the handlebar gives you a balance of being able to see exactly where you need to go and kind of leading with your head, as you say, and giving you the depth on the trail. So we want them to serve essentially two different purposes. And we designed the, the the Evo package or Evo on the bars and hangover on the helmet to do just that, where the handlebar light is a much wider beam pattern. So that, you know, slow technical climbing or tight and twisty descending when you're, you know, counter steering into a corner. Now the light is on the bars is pointing away from the corner. We don't want the corner to be totally dark. We want some light over there. So we make that very wide, which means now the handlebar light has to cover a much larger area. So it needs more light to do that. It needs more lumens which means needs more power, needs larger battery, and you don't feel that weight as much on your bike as you do on your head. On your head, because it's pointing where you're looking, you can get away with a narrower beam pattern. doesn't mean a tiny little spot, but a narrower beam, which means you can use less light to light up that smaller area and thus have a smaller battery, lighter weight. You can mount it lower to your helmet, which is better ergonomically for your neck and just for you know your helmet not moving around. And their two roles are the helmet light fills in down trail at speed and around corners. The handlebar light basically covers everything else so that you can read the terrain in the foreground with depth. It is not getting washed out. And so you can see your peripheral. So it's not just like a circle of light on the trail, but you've got scattered all the way to the edges. And that's what the handlebar light's really good for. That's the first time I've ever heard it explained that way. And it makes sense. But, you know, for me riding where I ride, right, like we have roots, but nothing huge. And we don't really have like big rocks poking up around the trail and stuff. So like, I've never felt like I needed a different type of depth perception or shadow perception and stuff. So it never made sense for me for where I rode. But hearing that, yeah, like I think if I went somewhere somewhere different, maybe I'd want all that extra light. Well, and I found that when I was talking on another show the other day, like I say it depends a lot. <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of one sentence marketing answers for stuff because a lot of this is nuance. And like you say, you're riding, if you're riding at night, you're riding your local trails, right? And your local trails in, in North Carolina, in that area of North Carolina, aren't quite as 
raw and rough and, and awful. So you don't need the depth from the handlebar as much, especially if you know the trails really well. You know, hey, that one rock right there is sticking up. I know where I need to, how I need to weight the bike to get around that. And then you can go with the helmet, helmet light because you're not actively reading the terrain as much because you know it. But if you're, say, going out to Sedona and you're night riding there and you don't know the trail, that's where the terrain is totally different. You really need to be able to read it appropriately the first time through, especially if you're trying to go fast. And that's where having more information and clearer information is is better. So both helps. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with just using helmet light like you are because it works for you. It's, you know, and some of that comes down to personal preference, too. You know, it's funny you mentioned the innovation side of it. And I would agree, like the innovation I've seen from the other bike brands, which make great products, um, has literally just been almost annual increases in the lumen output, right? Like the size, the shape, the battery life, nothing's really changed on any of them. So you guys are have a very unique look, you know, where most of them are kind of round or like maybe have like three LEDs side by side. You guys have what, five, six, 12, <laughs> like just stuff, a very wide appearance. And was that, how much of that was just like, we need to look different to stand out and how much of it is purely functional? It's almost entirely functional. It's nice that it looks different, but the main, the first driver was we wanted more optic area because we wanted to really fine tune the beam pattern. And you just, when you have a single LED, like a single high power LED and a single optic, it's really hard to control the beam and make it nice and even and have smooth gradients and transitions. You end up with color separation from the LED. You end up with weird beam artifacts and kind of bright and dark spots. So spreading it out and having more smaller LEDs gives us more space to fine tune every individual LEDs spread and blend them together. So in order to do that, having a long, skinny flashlight shaped light doesn't really give us the space we need to do that. So we turned the cell sideways so we can kind of spread out wider. And the benefit of that for, say, on a helmet light is that we can now have a GoPro mount tucked in behind the cell instead of underneath the light. So now we can also package the light so that it sits about an inch closer to your helmet than a typical flashlight style light just because of where we can stick that mount. And that means you don't feel the weight as much because if you if you take something, put it on your helmet and then imagine extending it a foot above your helmet, you'll feel that thing waving around a lot more because you've got a much longer lever arm on that mass. So the tighter we can tuck into the helmet, the less you're going to feel it on your head. And the less likely you're going to snag it on branches and that sort of thing. So the the cell orientation and the shape of the light started as purely functional. And then with that, we can do a couple of other unique things with the mounting and then with the thermal design. And that's that's really where where we're focusing most of our, our kind of engineering work. Right. So, yeah, it is a fairly small form factor for the hangover, which is the helmet light. But I do wonder, you know, for shits and grins more than anything right like why try and keep it all self-contained as opposed to have like a separate battery pack that i can run a cord to in my backpack or something while i'm riding yeah so the main reason is that people hate that generally <laughs> it's not fun setting up before a ride but no and i i remember like somebody setting up with a a light motion sika on the bars when i was back at industry nine and that light head has a six foot cable on it so that you can put it on your head and then run a battery pack wherever and have plenty of cable. 
So that means every time he set it up on his bike, he had to strap the headlight on and then wrap this cable around his head tube like 10 times so that it's not just flopping around all over the place and then stick this battery somewhere on the frame. He didn't have room inside the front triangle because uh, it was a like a Ibis Mojo and so it just didn't have that space to fit the pack. So he had to kind of stick it on the top of the top tube and then it kept sliding around because it's not hanging. It's it, Anyways, that's a mess. We don't like that. We want to avoid that. Also, our first product actually did have an external battery pack and uh, that, that Matt made before I, I came in. And we don't have a lot of failures in the field, but 90% of them were from the wires failing over time at joints or getting ripped out when somebody crashes or something like that. And that just sucks. So we basically took the design mantra of, all right, we're going to make everything self-contained as lightweight and small as possible. And then give people the ability to run external battery packs to extend runtime if they need that op- option. You know, where we're, where we're at right now, you can extend runtime, you can't extend it indefinitely forever, but you can use a standard USB power bank and pass through charge it while you're riding. So that means if you're doing a simple hour and a half ride on your local trails, you just slap the light on, no muss, no fuss, you go. If you decide you want to come out to Old Pueblo and do a 24-hour race, and you can plug in a 20-amp-hour power bank and run for 13 hours straight on medium and get through the race without having to swap. It's just giving people a little bit more flexibility. And we think we can do that without so much weight from the battery on the helmet that you don't, it's not going to be cumbersome. So, um, you know, our hangovers, 105 grams. A lot of other self-contained lights are on the market are 150 plus. So we're already like 50% lighter. And then you look at things like Glowworm. Glowworm makes an excellent product and they have a very different design philosophy from us. They are only external battery pack. They want to have a very lightweight, small lighthead and then a bigger battery they can run elsewhere. Their lighthead is 93 grams. So we're giving up 12 grams to keep the battery in there and give us the self-contained option. And I think that that's, that's definitely a trade-off we're willing to make. I, I do like Glowworm's product a lot. I, yeah, they have a lot of great features. And so, but I'm curious, right? Because like I ride with theirs all the time. And yeah, it is a very lightweight head. But it's also, again, just for easy comparison on numbers, right? Like it pumps out a lot more lumens. So is there something about the adding, let's just say it's a 2000 lumen right, light, right? And yours is, you know, approximately a thousand. So to double the lumen output, is that just a bigger LED? Which those things are so small and light. Like, is it, I don't know. How does that compare in terms of weight versus pulling the battery weight out? We could easily pump 2,000 lumens out of our light. We choose not to because then runtime would suffer and then you'd have to get more heat out of it. Um, to get more heat out, you need a, a more substantial heat sink, you need a more efficient heat sink, which is why despite having the entire battery mass, which is almost half the weight of the light, we're still within 10 grams because when you're pumping out 2,000 lumens, you have to have a substantial heat sink or or the light will overheat and you'll have to roll back the power to get it to thermally equalize even when you're moving. So you don't want a 2000 lumen light that dims to a thousand after five minutes of riding because it's too hot. We also don't want to have force people into a gigantic heavy battery to get the runtime they need. And because we're giving people the option, you know, that's, that's less of an issue, but also it comes down to how your eye responds to light. So your, your eyes full of chemical receptors that photons hit them, you have a, a response. And when you're out in daylight in the sun, your pupils constrict to protect those receptors. So it lets less light into your eyeball. At night, you're, when you have night vision or night adaptation, 
your pupils dilate to open up to let more light in. And that's a very slow process. You know, it takes 15, 20 minutes for your eyes to fully dilate in the dark um, so you can see better. So if you have, say, a really intense spot, your eyes going to respond to the most intense thing in your field of view. And it'll cause your pupils to constrict a little bit, which less le- lets less light in. So essentially what, what I'm trying to say is that your eye doesn't respond linearly to light. So if you, a 2000 lumen light does not necessarily feel twice as bright as a 1000 lumen light. For us to have something that feels twice as bright as our helmet light, we'd have to nearly quadruple the power output, which makes it really unoptimized for that application. You end up with something big, heavy, and bulky, which is not what you want on the helmet. And, you know, Glowworm chooses their balance differently than us. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just we kind of look at an average car. Your low beam headlights are legally limited to uh, 1,100 lumens apiece. So that's 2,000 lumens lets you drive at 80 miles an hour comfortably on a car when it's properly focused. We feel like if you have 3,000 between you know our handlebar light and our helmet light, that ought to be enough for you to ride a bike through the woods if it's applied appropriately. And we don't need to you know, get in a pissing match trying to make 10,000 lumens when it all it does is make a product that's not optimized for the application. Yeah, I mean, I do remember back in the day when an 800 lumen light was considered, whoa, you know, like so bright. Now, you know, 2,000, 2,500, it's just, it, it's funny because I end up riding with my lights mostly on like medium or I'll custom set them to about medium and then I'll only use the high for like extreme situations or something but yeah so i'm probably mostly running around 800 to a thousand lumens i just you know there's that maybe it's just you know more is better mentality of like it's nice to have it there just in case yes yeah and we're we're playing around with some some stuff for that because while this is our general design philosophy we're not selling the lights to us like we're making them so we we want to serve the customer needs and there are you know some customers that prefer helmet only and they want higher power cool, we'll have an option for that. We're, we're not just saying that's wrong. We're going to make something for that. We just didn't want to start with that because we think that our current package is really more or less ideal for most use cases. You know, like my buddy Robert over at the biker bar, he rides out in Southern California where his tracks are his local trails are like 30 mile an hour, straight line, high speed mobbing downhill. Our lights are not ideal for that because that's not the normal use case. Most people aren't on like World Cup downhill tracks for their local night rides. So (laughs) (laughs) he needs something narrower, narrower beam and higher power punching down the trail, which on a typical trail, if you're doing six miles an hour on on a loop in middle of North Carolina, that's going to be a bad beam pattern for that. So we're trying to basically cover the most common use cases for the average rider and then refine that to the less common use cases, the higher performance, like, you know, the, the downhill racer to the 24 hour bike packer type person and, and kind of fill the gaps in between. This bike rumor podcast was brought to you by the pros closet. Wherever you ride, the pros closet has road, mountain, gravel, and e-bikes to get you there. TPC carries a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes and a constantly expanding selection of parts, accessories, and apparel with available financing and competitive pricing. TPC has everything you need to gear up this season. Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BR podcast to save $40 on every order over 200. I've got a bunch of random questions, so there's no rhyme or reason to th- these linking together. It's just going to be random. Awesome. 
So going back to the the data point of lumens for a minute, you know, there's nothing at all on the box about it, nothing really inside the box about it. So I'm curious, like, how do you arm your retailers with information to be able to talk to consumers about the lights, right? Because on most any other package, if I go in the store and I see, you know, 2,000 lumens, 2,500 lumens, and I see nothing, I'm I'm going to gravitate to the ones where I don't have to maybe ask a bunch of questions. Yeah, and uh, so there's... Boy, there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, first of all, yeah, we have a challenge from an educational standpoint to teach consumers that there are other things to look at and what matters in that regard. So we're working on that and trying to convey, all right, lumens are important. Here they are. Here's beam pattern. Let's explain why this matters and why you want this on your handlebars. And you don't want just a generic light that you can mount anywhere because it's not really designed for it. As far as retailers go, we don't have a lot of retailers. We've got, I think, uh, we, we expanded a lot in this past year. So we have like three times as many as we did. 250, I think, around the country. So we've got several thousand shops left <laughs> to service. And and we are planning on expanding a lot. So what we're doing right now actually is making some point of purchase displays that have display lights to show the beam pattern on some level. You know, it's hard to really convey that in a bright room indoors in two feet of space, but we're making some displays so you can actually see things rather than just reading numbers. But I think that the biggest thing for us is most of the shops that that stock our lights right now, the people who work at the shop use them. And their response to most people is, no, 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 you just need to see them, like get in the dark and try them, come back to the shop after, after dark and take a look. It's not the perfect answer for everybody just walking in and shelf shopping, but we're not trying to expand and sell lights to everybody as fast as possible. You know, that our goal is not for everyone to have our lights. We're trying to grow sustainably. And I think it's, it's okay if somebody just wants more lumens, it's there. But we're working on that messaging. I think that, you know, like I was saying before, we just don't want to focus on that to start because then that's the only thing people pay attention to because they have a very short, people in general have a very short attention span. Yeah, they do. I did want to give you guys some kudos on the packaging because there's not an ounce of plastic in it, which I thought was fantastic, right? Like literally, you, you sent all three. So Trail Evo, Detour, Hangover, like there's no plastic in any of it, which is awesome. So good job on that. We used to have like zippered carrying cases um, for the lights and we found that the majority of customers weren't using them. So they're just throwing them away. And we decided screw this, let's just switch everything to wood pulp and fully recyclable stuff and just make it simple. All the same size box. And a lot of that's for efficiency as well. And then we'll, we'll have options for like carrying cases in the future. But yeah, there's no reason for us to have plastic. I mean, I just keep mine in the box. So <laughs> works well. It makes it easy to stack in my closet, right? Like you keep it all organized. So cool. The, uh, all right, a couple of things, because you've got your latest product is a road bike headlight. So what I'm wondering with that is most roadies also use a taillight. And I think that's, you know, the glaring omission from a road setup. So we can talk about either one first. And, you know, like, do you have a taillight coming? Yes, but not immediately. And the short explanation as to why is that uh, people are more willing to pay what a, a forward-facing light is worth than a taillight. People just do not expect a taillight to cost money making a product that is a price that people are willing to pay that is better than what exists that's possible for us to you know survive on like if we started with the taillight we'd be out of business now uh, so we start <laughs> There's a lot of options for sure yeah and it's a kind of a race to the bottom because people think i just need to be seen so i just need a blinky red light and like well 
actually all that people see when they see a blinky red light is that blinky red light. They don't know that it's a bicycle. They don't know what it is. So for example, what we're going to focus on with our tail light is not just casting light backwards, but also having good, you know, 360 visibility, but casting light down onto the rider's legs and the wheel so that it's obvious, hey, here's legs moving. That's a person on a bicycle, not just a tiny red light. Because red light also, if you just have, you know, a, a red light pointing at you from a distance, depth perception is completely off. You don't know quite how far up away that is in absence of other light. So having a little more definition to the rider is important. That means probably multiple LEDs and a custom designed optic and none of that's cheap. So we're we're gonna make a tail light, probably multiple, and it's gonna be cool and different, but we basically have to grow to the point where our customer base is big enough that it's financially viable, like it, that it makes sense. So it's coming, but there's there's some options out there from companies like Exposure. You know, they make really high quality lights and they have a couple of very uh, small, well-built tail lights um, that I recommend to people in the meantime if they're looking for something. And then, yeah, the, the road light in the front, that's where nothing in the U.S. really exists like that. And we're, we could talk about that. I don't know what questions you have about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is different for people who haven't seen it. It's a, a dual LED and it, it, it's hard to explain what it looks like. I mean, I'm, it's sitting on my bike right over here next to me and it's just, it's really cool because it mounts under. It's has the beam cut off like automotive do, which I think was a big thing, right? Like that was kind of the marketing push was like it acts like a car headlight because that's what works on the road, right? But so yeah, put it in your own words. Like, what's the pitch on that one? Yeah, and this is I mean, when people ask what our our design philosophy is and and why we make things the way we do. It's really about optimizing the light for specific use purposes. It's not here's a light that works on a bike for whatever. You can make those, but they're always, they're a jack of all trades, master of none kind of scenario. So what we're doing is that road light is focused purely on being a a road light for high traffic areas with a cutoff beam. So your cars have cutoff beams for your low beam headlights, um, so you don't blind the hell out of everybody coming towards you. And uh, I mentioned the STVZO requirements in, in Germany and Europe. That's specifically to have a cutoff beam on, on bike lights. So a lot of German manufacturers, Bush and Mueller and Lupine, like they have a ton of cutoff beam headlights. They rate them by Lux, not Lumens. And that's what the market demands over there. No one in the U.S. is doing that because it's not regulated. So there's no reason to put the time and effort into sculpting this perfect beam pattern because the market's not asking for it. We decided we wanted to make something and try to educate people that this is a better way to do things. For example, if you're commuting primarily in busy areas, you want to be seen and you want to not piss off everybody that's driving several thousand pound vehicles directly towards you. So not blinding them is important. And then having more light scatter around your front wheel again, so that they can see you're a bicycle and not just a light and not just a tiny light also. Uh, you know, I've got a really wide face on it so that it's it's physically larger, which helps you be seen more. That's more important for safety, but it's also more efficient because now we're putting all the light on the road instead of sending, you know, if you've got a round beam pattern, the horizon is in the middle. You're sending half of that light up into the sky where it's all it's doing is blinding drivers and then being wasted. It's not helping you see the road any better, which means you're using more power. So you're getting lower run times and not getting as much brightness on the ground. So it's serving the two purposes of performance and safety for road riders. And 
we've already seen that it is great for specific use cases like commuting, uh, a lot of backcountry riding uh, where you're you're out there on on flat roads. Um, a lot of bike packing has actually been good on on gravel. But people who are like Tour de France uh, type riders, where they're they're going out and 25 mile an hour average speed loops and banked corners on steep mountain roads. This may not be the light for you because when you turn your, your beam turns with you and can leave some dead spots. So there's ways to get around that by combining it with a helmet light when appropriate, and then giving you the ability to turn the helmet light off and just use the road light when you're around other people. So I think it's, it's a good start into this, uh, this road segment for us and trying to get people to do something different. You know, Trek recently offered a cutoff beam light, but they don't have any optical engineers in house. So (laughs) it has these weird beam artifacts and like it's yellow and blue striped and it's, it's, it's not really a cutoff beam. It still blinds people. It's very weird. So we're, we're trying to do that differently and in a more refined manner. And we'll make more products for the road segment with more features that, that people are looking for. Right. Well, what I like about yours, your mounting system is that you can tuck it down under because I run, you know, a K-Edge computer mount. And for us, first thing I was looking at, I was like, ah, crap, you know, because most bar mount lights are designed for mounting on top of the bar, which is, a you know, like a, a real cyclist, I'm using air quotes, that just looks janky, right? Like, I'm not going to put a that. So usually I mount the lights under my computer mount, you know, using their little adapter, like their GoPro style adapter, which works great. The trick is there's not, as you probably know, right? Like there's not a single light out there that's made for being mounted upside down. Not that any of them have a real specific top or bottom design, but, you know, like with that Bontrager one, you know, they sent that and that was my first question is, you know, are you going to make a version that has the mounts on the top so I can stick it under my thing? Because it is like, you're, you're right. It's a good concept. So I like it. So anyway, but your mount works quite well with a, with a right-hand side com- computer mount, you can mount this clamp on the left. So if there's a couple of brands that include their computer mounts that mount on the left, in which case you might have to get a, make yours a little bit. Uh, I guess, could you flip it though? Can you mount the bike, the light into the insert flip-flopped? Yeah, and that's uh, like you're talking about with a shell, whether it's to look different or be functional. Because our mount is now on the backside of the light, and it's symmetric, we can, you can flip that mount upside down, whatever, and always make sure the light goes in right side up. So like that Bontrager light, their solution to having it mounted underneath the computer is this gigantic plastic enclosure that goes around to the underside of the light to attach to the same mounting interface. And that means when you take the light off, you've got this gigantic plastic thing, cage stuck on there. And we didn't want like Band-Aid type solutions like that. So you can flip the mount, you can offset it, we have GoPro adapters for attaching directly to the bottom of K-Edge mounts. Oh, cool. Well, we don't need to talk about K-Edge. They're, they make a high-quality product. So we have options. That said, there's... God, I hate the bike industry sometimes. There's so many standards. <laughs> and there's so many new things that are in the name of aero or integration, and they just basically eliminate all mounting standards in the name of integrated whatever. Bars, in particular, have been a headache. And so... Thankfully, some are starting to put threaded fittings in there so you can have some off-the-shelf options from K-Edge and, and the like to adapt things to it. But then there's some that are not round, not straight, constantly tapering, where you have to have multiple axes of angular adjustment to get the light pointed in the right direction, and then it still wants to slide. Like, it's just trying to make something universal for that is uh, it's difficult. Um, so 
we're never without something to do. I'll say that. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, there was, I have a handlebar that I was struggling to figure out how to put it on there, but I, I, I didn't know you guys had a GoPro style mount for that. So that's good. But now I'm curious, right? So like, you know, with K-Edge, I mean, they have like their heavy duty one now for carrying big, heavy things underneath them, plus the computer weight, right? And your your Detour, which is your road bike model, it's 150 grams. Is that pushing what an out front computer mount should be carrying when it also has like the big, huge computers that we all run nowadays? Not really. And I, I tested a lot of these from K-Edge, from Barfly, from generic Amazon garbage brands. And what I can say is that all the proper name brand stuff, even Barfly, they make glass-reinforced nylon mounts. They don't use aluminum. Even those, they look thin and spindly. They'll hold up. Like I put it on my hardtail, cranked the compression up on my fork, and went out and tried to break the thing, and it held up just fine. So the only ones that suck are cheap Amazon garbage. And I think that's just a general useful rule to remember for all products. We are actually changing our GoPro adapter, not changing it. We're adding more adapters and more mount options as we go because there's more situations where we find, you know, conflicts with certain brands or types like for KH, for example, that GoPro tab interface is designed to be made out of a polymer so that the tabs can bend in and make good surface contact for grip. If you make it out of really stiff aluminum, you have to really tighten that screw down to get proper grip on those faces. So that combined with kind of the the geometry of our mount, like putting the light out front further, it's difficult. We're cantilevering more weight out front. It means we need more grip from those tabs. So you have to torque that thing down more than you might like. So we're gonna make some different offset adapters that kind of balance the center of gravity a little bit better and give you different offsets so that the button's easier to reach and that sort of thing. You know, like everything, the the first shot out of the gate covers 95% of the use cases, and then we'll start making more pieces to fill in the gaps for the ones where it doesn't quite work. Yeah, my little personal request would be when you do those GoPro kits and you have the new versions, include like maybe even a titanium, but the important thing is like a Torx, like a T25 bolt instead of the normal one, because I've stripped so many of these little bolts for exactly that reason, right? Tightening it enough so the light doesn't shake or, you know, like, change position while I'm riding. And yeah, I have a graveyard of those bolts. (laughs) Well, that was kind of all my questions for you, man. I just really enjoyed learning a little bit more about your brand and the philosophy of the lights and all that. And so I'm excited. We were talking before I hit record, right? Like I have all these lights sitting here and the weather has just been so bad since they arrived that I have not had the chance to use them yet. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. You could still go out and use them. It's just going to be miserable for you. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I don't want to tear up our trails for the mountain bike stuff. The road ones, yeah, but it's also like 40 degrees. So 40 degrees and rainy is not a fun ride. That's that's fair. I'm out in the Pacific Northwest, and our, our, our trail network that we ride all throughout the winter and the pissing rain is one that is private and we maintain, and it holds up really well. But I know that's not, especially North Carolina, where there's so much clay. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just, you get ruts and no time and then they take forever to go away yeah i'm with you well not to say for you know like like this conversation for people who have questions about lights specifically or weird setups that don't work i'm usually the one to answer most of the emails lauren <laughs> has helped a ton with that this year since we brought her on but any social media comments messages and whatever if you have a question just ask us we tend to be pretty responsive to that sort of thing because we don't we, we want people to understand what works and why and find solutions because we feel like it's better if everybody 
enjoys the product long term. So yeah, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Cool. I did have one uh, kind of more business question, just because I'm always fascinated about the the business side of things. Uh, well, too actually, I think the ink the ink lists are for privately held companies, right? So you guys are still private, and we will continue to be. Cool. For the road light, the the detour commuters seems like an obvious use case. Do you have any idea like what the breakdown is in customers for like pure roadies versus commuters? Because I mean, I got a few friends that'll get up super early and ride, but not a ton. Yeah. We try to collect that data. We have to do a lot of like post-sales questionnaire type stuff to, to really get that. And it is entirely geographically dependent. So the example that comes off the top of my head is Phoenix, Arizona, where in the summers you ride in the dark or you die. Or you don't ride. You spontaneously <laughs> combust and you burn to the ground. It's, you know, you get up at four in the morning, you go for a road ride and start in the dark and then you finish right as the sun's coming up and then you go inside and take a nap because it's it's already so hot. Um, so that is very common. And a lot of people are riding night riding in the summer just to avoid the heat, whereas the rest of the year, you know, especially up here up north, like it, the sun doesn't set until 1030 in the summer. We're not night riding like at all for six months. It really just depends on the geography and where you're at. As far as roadies go, that's that's another thing where I'm not a roadie. I <laughs> I don't relate as well. So I rely a lot on customer feedback for, for products like that and how they're being used. Um, and I think a lot of people are using that light currently for exclusive daytime riding. They want to have a better light that doesn't piss people off and they want to be seen. And so they're using the the daytime visibility modes rather than constant on mode a lot of the time. And that's something I didn't expect when we first launched that. I figured it'd be mostly like more hardcore, dedicated night riding. But there's a lot, particularly in big cities where people are getting them, you know, lots of lights going out to San Francisco for daytime riding. I'm, I'm glad you have a flash function on there because there's another light I got recently that, you know, like I love the design of it and all that, but there's no flash mode. And so you know, I'd go out on a three-hour ride and 90 minutes into it, the light's dead because it was just on constantly. And so that was super frustrating to find out. Well, we have two different modes, one for daytime and one for nighttime because in the daytime, everything's so bright, your pupils are constricted. You need more light to be visible. You don't want it on max all the time because you're wasting your battery. So having a, a quick, violent flash strobe effect gets a lot more attention in the daytime. At night, that's a good way to completely destroy the night vision of anybody looking at you. So we have a or nighttime pulse mode is what we call it. So it more smoothly pulses. So it still gives you a, a more visible footprint without stressing the eyes of, of people looking at you as much. Yeah. What about uh, remotes? Because I know some brands have like a bar remote, which, you know, especially for like helmet lights is kind of nice to be able to like quickly switch the mode. Yeah, we, we're definitely making wireless remotes for future products. Um, that's another thing where we wanted to start. I've had projects in the past in my professional life killed by feature creep, where like, oh, I could just add this feature and then I can make it do this too. And then you never actually launch a product. And um, that's, <laughs> that's not good. So we wanted to start with the most basic, simple to use, no frills interface that does the job well, and then start adding features when they have real value. So we're we're definitely making uh, wireless remotes for future products, um, but that's also one where we have to be a lot more forward-looking to not create a mess of things for, for customers and compatibility in particular. So we don't want just a single button remote that's Velcro to the top of the bars. It's if you have to take your hand off the grip to reach it and use it appropriately, you're not gonna use it as much. So 
ergonomics is is point one, which means we're going to have to do a lot of testing with that, with different cockpit setups to make sure it can be used and adjusted to a position where it's easily reached. But then also having feedback, like your helmet light, it's good to control it. But if you don't know what the battery is at, you still have to take your helmet off to check that. That's not good. We want battery feedback fed into the remote so you can see that on your bars instead of having to look on your helmet. And then then we get into personal preference and like one person wants one button per light. One person wants up down where they control both in unison. One person wants one button to go to a preferred mode and the other one to just cycle through and one to center strobes. And like, okay, so how do we do this and make it adjustable enough to do what people want it to do without making it so complicated that no one wants to use it? And that's that's really a it's a full user interface issue. Um, where does that need to be a Bluetooth app? Are people really going to actually download apps to control their lights? Um, even if it's just for setup and then never again, um, that's a lot of development cost and complexity and so forth and so on. So to answer your question from 20 minutes ago, yes, we're making improvements. <laughs> uh, yeah, the apps thing was what I was thinking is, you know, the apps for setup and then you put your phone away, hopefully, and just go ride and use the little remote. But um, it seems yeah. to work well for SRAM, right? Like for people who care enough to customize it, like figure out what most people want, make that the stock setting. And then if you want to use the app, to customize it, great. If not, you never have to. Yeah, and I was I was talking to SRAM um, about their their Axis app setup, and turns out they have a team of engineers working for years to make that entire ecosystem exist, and it works well as a result. We don't have that, so right. uh, I don't think SRAM's going to be <laughs> contract engineering for us or let us use it. So we again, we want to be that, that to be as simple as possible while giving the maximum flexibility and no matter what we do, there's going to be somebody that says, why doesn't it do this? So long as that's 1% of people and not 50%, then I think we're doing all right. But um, yeah, there's just there's just a lot that goes into that. So that's that's our next big challenge. All right. Um, okay. Tell me, last one. Tell me about the adaptive mode. What is that? Yeah. So a lot of people think that that's um, using a bunch of complicated sensors to use an AI program to figure out what output you need. It's a very simple passive adaptive. So it uses a combination of runtime, temperature, and battery status to determine output. And essentially what we're doing there is giving you a dedicated high, medium, low, where it stays at whatever value it says it is, like 100% for high, it stays 100% until it can't anymore, until it gets down to low battery. Adaptive starts at max output, starts at 100%, and over the first 20 minutes or so, it'll taper down very slowly to around 70%. The idea being that your eyes are adapting to the darkness over that 15 minutes. Your pupils are dilating. So you don't notice, you don't feel the change in brightness. You're getting 30% more runtime out of it because now you're less power. And honestly, a lot of lights have been doing this for a very long time. We can have a whole separate 30-minute discussion on FL1 standards, but suffice to say, lights will start at 100% and halfway through your ride, they're at 60%. And then when they're about to die, they're at 30%. And I feel like that's disingenuous and kind of almost false advertising. Like, yeah, it's 2,000 lumens for two hours, but after an hour, you've only got 800. That's not real. So we wanted our high mode where uh, it stays at 100% to stay at it for, you know, like an enduro type ride where you're going up a long climb and you don't need 2,000 lumens on the climb. You turn it down to low because you're going two miles an hour and you get to the top and you're hour and a half into your ride and you've got the gnarliest, fastest downhill coming up. You want to know that your light can reach 100%, not 40% or wherever it is on that curve, right? So we give you a high mode 
for that use case. And then adaptive is more of the set and forget mode for like typical cross country rides where you turn it on, you don't want to constantly be changing output. If you have rolling terrain where you're averaging pretty even speeds, so you just turn it on and you leave it and it maximizes runtime while still feeling like it's max brightness. Does that make sense? Is there anything I didn't ask or we haven't talked about that seems to be like a common thing or just something really interesting that you want people to know? How much time you got? (laughs) (laughs) Pick pick one. (laughs) What's your favorite? Oh, man. God, there's so many. Well, you asked a couple of questions about business, right? So I'll I'll say that even even outside of lights, because we we're four people in our company and we're we're trying to do we're trying to do the right thing by customers. We're trying to be responsive. We're trying to make all the things that people want. I just want to give a I don't know. I want to I want to say thank you to all the people who work in dedicated customer service jobs out there (laughs) Um, (laughs) as the one who has to answer all the emails. uh, I miss having to have like human interaction with people uh, where. They have to look at your face and tell you they're pissed off about something because emails and internet, it's tough. Even when things are good, you still get, you get a lot of flack from people who think they're talking to faceless internet robots. And so a big part of why we, we post a lot about like us assembling lights through the holidays and, and working hard and working long hours is not to say, is not to pump us up and say how awesome we are. It's to make it clear we are humans running this company. We are not some big faceless corporate entity. You're not going to get a call center in India when when you call us. You're probably not going to get me either because I won't answer, but I will call you back. We try to make it abundantly clear. We're humans. We're here to make sure that our customers are happy. We're not trying to play games with people or screw people over. And I find that if people realize that, they're, they're a lot more happy to work with you. They're a lot more stoked on the product and we can we can get people what they need. That take, takes a lot of calories on our side to really engage in depth with every customer that contacts us. But it's an important part of our business that we've found. If you stand behind your product, if you support customers really well, that sells just as well as the product itself. Like a lot of people will specifically stay away from a product if they think they're going to get crap support from the company. So we put a lot of time and effort into that. That's cool. Yeah. My wife no longer does it as of this year, but up until the end of 2022 for, you know, the beginning of bike rumors, she was the one moderating the comments and it is not a fun job, you know, and, you know, the vast majority of people are benign or, you know, nice or just curious, right? But you get those one or two and at some point early on, I told her, I was like, you know what? They're probably just having a really bad day. They're mad about something, you know, there's something else bothering them because I read them and I'd like, you don't reply to something like that just because, right? There's something bothering you and you're taking it out there. And sure enough, we'd reply sometimes and be like, hey, you know, um, sounds like maybe you're having a bad day. Just, you know, we fixed the or whatever it was, right? And almost every time they get a reply back, you know, I'm so sorry. You're right. I was just, something was pissing me off. And it's like, as soon as you make that human connection, everything changes. So yeah, it's, I think that's kind of a universal lesson. Yeah. Aside from you know, trolls that will be trolls. I think I've only had one customer that came in super hot and angry about something. And I offered to, you know, fix it immediately because that's what we do. And he doubled down on just being pissed off about it. And I was like, all right, now you have two options. You either let me fix this for you or I just send you a return label and you're no longer a customer. We'll just take it back and you can go on about your life. And and he is like, well, I just found that with other companies, if I'm not angry, then I don't get any attention. I'm like, not us. I'm not going to put up with it, nor am I going to let any of my employees put up with it. So 
calm down. It's going to be okay. <laughs> right. Ground rules. <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.